Chapter 38 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andy Glover. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 38. The 18th Century. At the death of Louis XIV, a new period seems to begin in the history of the world. The 18th century was very different, in many ways, from the 16th and 17th centuries. People did not even pretend now to go to war about religion. Yet there were two very great wars in the middle of this century, in which nearly all the great countries of Europe joined. The stronger countries of Eastern Europe joined together or fought with each other to take the land of the smaller states and make their own countries stronger. There was no question of right and wrong. The strong countries were fighting to get as much as they could. Kings and queens have never been so selfish before or since. In the wars of the century, England was always against France. The real reason for this was that both countries had colonies in North America and India, and each wanted to push the other out of these continents, so that while English and French armies were fighting in Europe, others were fighting in North America and India, and we shall see how, in the end, England won both these continents for herself. The people of the 18th century were very fond of amusement and dress. The richer people went a great deal to watering places to drink the waters and amuse themselves. Many philosophers began not to believe in God at all, and most people, even those who went to church, did not bother themselves much about religion. But there was one good side to this. In England, the worst laws against Roman Catholics and Unitarians were no longer noticed. They were not repealed, but they were no longer put into practice. The Unitarians were people who believed in God, but did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. After the Revolution of 1688, the dissenters, as those Protestants who had left the English church were called, were freed from persecution and allowed to worship in their own chapels. The dress of the people everywhere was still very brightly colored, and the richer people had their clothes made of very beautiful stuffs. Men wore wigs often tied with a ribbon at the back, and ladies had their hair puffed out and powdered. But in spite of all their finery, the people of the 18th century were still very rough, and manners were not nearly so refined as they are today. Even gentlemen who were good scholars drank a great deal too much wine, and both men and women had a great passion for playing cards for money. Just as there was no longer any great enthusiasm about religion or even about other things, so there was no really great poetry. The best writers of the time were to be found in England, but poets like Alexander Pope, who wrote poems like the Essay on Man, might almost as well have written in prose. The language was clever, and the verses perfect in many ways, but it was not poetical. There were some very great writers of prose, such as Addison, Steele, and Swift. And before the end of the century, there were the first real English novels by men like Henry Fielding. But before the end of the century, too, there was a great change, which came to a head at the beginning of the next century. 
when many new poets wrote poems full of passion. In some ways, the people of today are more different from the people of the 18th century than the people of the 16th and 17th centuries were different from those of the Middle Ages. The first great war of the 18th century was called the War of the Austrian Succession. Charles VI, the Emperor of Austria, had died. He had no sons, and he left Austria and all his possessions to his beautiful young daughter, Maria Theresa. Some of these possessions had never had a woman ruling over them before. But Charles VI had written a kind of law which was called the Pragmatic Sanction, saying that his daughter should rule after him in all his possessions. Nearly all the other countries agreed to the Pragmatic Sanction, though France would not. And so when her father died, Maria Theresa became the Empress of Austria, Queen of Hungary and Bohemia, and ruler of the Netherlands. She was only 23 years old when she was crowned. She had to go specially to Hungary to be crowned there, with the old iron crown of that kingdom. The crown had to be padded to make it fit so small a head. The people had always loved Maria Theresa. When she was only 14, she had begun to be present at her father's council meetings. People often got her to ask for favors or mercy from her father when he was angry with them. And a story is told that he once said to her, You think that a sovereign has nothing to do but grant favors. And the girl answered, I think that is the only thing that can make a crown bearable. Another story says that her father wanted her to marry Frederick the Great, the king of the new German kingdom of Prussia. But she loved her cousin, the Duke of Lorraine, and cried when she thought she was not to be allowed to marry him. And so her father gave in, and she had been married four years when she became Empress of Austria. But before many months had passed, the other countries began to try and steal her lands from her. France, Spain, and Prussia attacked her, although both Spain and Prussia had promised her father not to do so. The little kingdom of Prussia had been got together by Frederick's great-grandfather, the elector of the little state of Brandenburg. He was always called the Great Elector. His son had been made king of all the possessions he had left, and the new kingdom was called Prussia. The first king of Prussia was called Frederick I, he was the grandfather of Frederick II, who was called the Great. Frederick the Great's father had been called Frederick William, like the Great Elector. His great passion was the army. He searched everywhere for the tallest men he could find, and his soldiers often looked like giants. Frederick the Great. When Frederick the Great was a little boy, his father was dreadfully strict with him. He was afraid that the boy would not grow up to be a good soldier because he liked playing the flute and dressing himself up, and other things which seemed much more amusing to him than being drilled with the hundred boys whom his father brought to the palace, so that Fritz, as Frederick was called in German, could learn how to command them. His father planned out his whole day for him. He was to get up at six and not even turn over in bed, but get up at once, say his prayers, wash himself, and have his breakfast while his hair was being combed and all was to be finished by half-past six. Then he was to learn history for two hours, and have religious instruction for another two, and then after another wash, and changing into a clean shirt and coat, he was to go in and see his father, and so on. But the little Fritz grew very tired of all the strictness, 
and as he grew up into a young man, his father could hardly bear to look at him. He often beat him, and once Frederick ran away, but he was brought back and put in a kind of prison for a year. But later on, the father and son began to understand each other better, and when he was dying, Frederick William thanked God for having given him such a good son to have the kingdom after him. Frederick soon showed that he was a splendid soldier and a very clever man. Under him, Prussia grew stronger and stronger, and it was all through the king, and that is how he came to be called Frederick the Great. Frederick did not see why soldiers need to be giants, and was not anxious, like his father, to seize all the biggest men and make them join the army. But he looked well after his army, and made it one of the best in Europe. He was also a good ruler. Although he was absolute like all the kings of the time, except the English, he used his power well. He tolerated all religions, and tried to do justice to everybody. Frederick became king in 1640, the same year that Maria Theresa became Empress of Austria. There belonged to Austria a province called Silesia, which the electors of Brandenburg had said for years should belong to them. Frederick thought that this was his chance to win Silesia for Prussia. He invaded it and defeated an Austrian army in a great battle. He had first offered to help Maria Theresa against her other enemies if she would give him the province, but she proudly refused. Then the elector of Bavaria, who thought that he should be emperor of Austria, and had never agreed to the pragmatic sanction, invaded Austria, and the Duke of Saxony helped him by taking an army into Bohemia. But Maria Theresa begged the nobles of Hungary to help her. They were full of love and admiration for their beautiful young queen, and declared that they would give their lives for her. She, in her turn, gave the Hungarians many privileges which the emperors had always refused them. The King of England at this time was George II, who was also elector of the little German state of Hanover. Queen Anne had no children alive when she died in 1714 and the throne of England had been settled on the descendants of the electress Sophia of Hanover, the granddaughter of James I, and daughter of the elector who had been driven out of the Palatinate at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. Her son George, the elector of Hanover, became king of England when Queen Anne died, and after him, his son George II. Both these men were quite German, and could not even speak English. They did not even attend the meeting of the cabinet, or chief men in parliament who ruled the country, and this helped the English parliament to become more and more powerful. King George II went over himself to fight for Maria Theresa. The elector of Bavaria had been crowned emperor, but he died in the middle of the war, and Maria Theresa's husband was crowned emperor and called Francis I. France had conquered nearly all the Netherlands and attacked Holland, but when peace was made in 1748, all conquered lands had to be given back, except Silesia, which Frederick kept. Maria Theresa hated giving it up, but she knew there was nothing else to do at the time, and she was always very sensible. But she made up her mind to take revenge on Frederick when the time came, and in the year 1756 war broke out again. It was called the Seven Years' War. This time, England was on the side of Prussia, and France on the side of Austria. But the greatest help to Maria Theresa came from the Tsarina, Elizabeth of Russia, 
the daughter of Peter the Great. The Tsarina was a very beautiful and charming woman, though almost a savage in some ways like her father. For Russia was very far from being civilized even yet. Elizabeth thought that Prussia was getting far too powerful, and besides, she hated Frederick the Great, who could say very witty and cruel things, and had said things about Elizabeth, which had been repeated to her. Her private life was far from good, but this did not make her any more pleased when people talked about it. France and England fought during the war, chiefly in America and India, and we must tell the story of their struggle later. England, which was growing richer as her trade improved, paid great sums of money to help Frederick to fight. Sometimes the English grumbled, but William Pitt, the great commoner, as he was called, who was the chief man in England at the time, told them that it was necessary, saying, America must be conquered in Germany, by which he meant that by weakening France and Europe, he could better win her colonies from her abroad. He won many battles, but lost many too. France, Austria, and Russia were all powerful enemies, but it was the cleverness of Elizabeth which kept them together. In the year 1762, Frederick was talking about saving the remains of his possessions for his nephew, and he probably meant to get himself killed in battle. But just then, the Tsarina died. The new Tsar, another Peter, was a great admirer of Frederick, and immediately made peace with him. In the next year, a general peace was made. In Europe, there was no real change after all the fighting, but Frederick kept Silesia, and from this time, Prussia became an equal power with France and Austria among the countries of Europe. When next we hear of the great powers of Europe doing anything important, we find Prussia, Austria, and Russia joined together ten years afterwards to steal land from the country of Poland, which lay between their boundaries. None of these countries had any right to Poland, but part of the Polish possessions called West Prussia lay on the Baltic, between Brandenburg and Prussia, and Frederick longed to get this for himself, and so joined the two parts of his kingdom together. He knew that he would not be able to take it unless Russia and Austria got some part of Poland too. The Partition of Poland Poland was a very weak country because of its peculiar government. The king had very little power, but there were an immense number of nobles. Nothing could be done in the government of the country, unless every single noble agreed to it. And this did not often happen, and so things were not done. But the Poles were a proud and noble people, and the three great powers who now attacked them were doing a very cruel and selfish thing. There was a great deal of trouble going on in Poland when the three countries attacked it. Prussia got West Prussia, Russia a slice of the east of Poland, and Austria a province in the south. Maria Theresa did not much like the idea of the partition of Poland as it was called, but she thought that it was her duty to Austria to take part, if Prussia and Russia did so, and she said if she took any she must have a good share. The Polish nobles were treated very cruelly when they refused to agree to the partition, and had to give in. The ruler of Russia at this time was the great Tsarina, Catherine II. She was the wife of the Peter who admired Frederick the Great so much. This Peter was really a very mean and miserable little man. He was more German than Russian, and often hurt the feelings of the people whom he pretended to govern. 
He was very rough and cruel to his wife. Catherine was not a good woman, but she was a splendid empress. Although she was a German Protestant princess, she soon learned the Russian language and took the religion of the Greek church, which the Russians followed as her own. After a time, she got some of the chief Russians to seize Peter and put him in prison, where he died. Most people think that Catherine had him murdered. But the Russians were proud of their Tsarina, and she did all she could to make the country greater. For twenty years after the first partition of Poland, that part of the country which was left was very much under the power of Catherine. At last, while she was fighting the Turks, some of the Poles tried to make a new government which would make their country freer. But Catherine soon stopped this. In 1793, there was a second partition of Poland between Prussia and Russia. Frederick the Great and Maria Theresa were both dead by this time. But the later rulers of those countries were just as cruel to Poland. After this, there was only a tiny kingdom of Poland left. A brave noble called Kosciuszko tried to get help for his country from France and other countries, but could not. And then, he and a few brave friends died fighting against their enemies. Then a third partition was made of all that was left of Poland. Since then, there has never really been a kingdom of Poland, but Polish exiles may be found in every country of Europe. The best of them are always hoping for the time when Poland shall be a nation once more. The story of the partitions of Poland show, almost better than anything else, the selfishness of the kings and queens of Europe in the 18th century. End of chapter 38